you have your Bibles, please open them to Revelation chapter 7. We're going to be looking at the second half of that glorious chapter after covering the first half last week. And we'll be looking at verses 9 through 17. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. I'm going to read those verses for you now, brothers and sisters. But before I do, I remind you as always that this is the word of the living God. And so may we receive it from him as such. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, We come before you humbly acknowledging we cannot rightly understand or love your word without the assistance of the Holy Spirit. And so we pray now as your word goes forth that you would cause it to have great effect in us as we look to you in faith and receive it from you. Show us the glories of your son as they are revealed to us in this revelation that we might be further conformed to his image and be about the business that you've left us here for, making him known to all around us. We ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, one of the most helpful ways that you can motivate or encourage someone to continue doing something that is difficult over a long period of time trying to accomplish some goal 
that requires a great amount of discipline over an extended period of time is to give them some sense of what the end goal is. If you can give them almost a picture or a vision or an image of where it is that they're headed, then when they're very tempted to give up on that goal, they will likely press on if they can call that image to mind. So think about if you're trying to lose weight. If you're trying to lose weight, you know that you've got to eat right, you've got to exercise regularly, and at times you're tempted to give up on that. But if someone, when you started out on that journey, said this is what your weight will be, or this is what you will look like, your weight will be this, your muscle mass index will be this, your BMI, whatever. If you can conjure up an image of what you will look like if you stay the course, that is very motivating and very encouraging. And the reason I bring that up is because I think that's very much akin to what John is doing here. John is giving us a vision, a understanding of the end goal of the Christian life. The glorified saints being a part of the new creation. This is what they will enjoy for all eternity if by God's grace they persevere and endure until the very end. And that is meant to encourage and motivate us as well, brothers and sisters. And so as we look at this vision that we have of the new creation, I want us to look at three realities that John shows us here. Three realities that John shows us about the new creation. First of all, we're going to look at the new creation envisioned in verses 9 through 12. John gives us a very clear picture of what the new creation looks like. So we'll look at that first. Second of all, we'll look at the new creation explained in verses 13 and 14. How do we become this new creation? There's a little dialogue between one of the elders and John explaining how that takes place in verses 13 and 14. And then finally, thirdly, we'll look at the new creation enjoyed. We'll look at how the saints enjoy the glory of God and worshiping Him for all eternity. And again, brothers and sisters, pastorally, I pray that the Lord uses this to encourage us that whatever crosses we're having to bear, whatever sufferings we are enduring, the crown is worth it. And the Lord will take us all the way home, every step of the way. So let's look then first at this vision of the new creation. The new creation envisioned in verses 9 through 12. And before we even jump into that, I just want to remind you what role chapter 7 as a whole plays here in this flow of Revelation. And it's sort of a parenthesis from the overall flow of where we're headed, because chapter 7 is answering a question that was sort of left lingering in our minds in chapter 6. You remember that the final judgment at the end of Revelation 6 happens, and we're left with this question in Revelation 6, verse 17. The day of the wrath of the Lord has come, and who can stand? Who can persevere? Who can endure? And the first half of chapter 7 answered that question by telling us, well, before the four horsemen are even unleashed in this time of great tribulation, from when Christ ascends to the Father's right hand until he comes back again, before that even happened, 
God has set his seal upon his people. They've been sealed by the Holy Spirit in accord with their election in eternity past according to God's decree. And so who will endure through the great tribulation? Who can stand on the day of final judgment? Those who have been sealed. And then here in the second half of chapter 7, we're shown the saints enjoying their rewards for enduring until the end. And we know that this second half of chapter 7 is answering that question of who can stand because of some language in verse 9. Look at verse 9 of Revelation 7 with me. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, here's our word, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So there's that word, they're standing. They have stood. They have persevered by God's grace faithfully through the great tribulation and through the final judgment. And this word, stand, should send off alarm bells and not just take us back to Revelation chapter 6, but even further back into Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6, where the lamb who was slain is what? He is standing. Same Greek word. So what are we being shown here? We're being shown our union with Christ. That because he stands, we stand in him. Because he stood, we know that we will stand with him as well. We will endure through the great tribulation and we will endure that final judgment. Now here's the question that we have to answer. Who are these folks who are standing? Well, quite simply, it's the same group of folks that we saw in the first half of Revelation chapter 7. It's the same group of people. It's all of true Israel. It's the entirety of the people of God. The only difference between the first half of chapter 7 and the second half of chapter 7 is that in the first half, it's the saints before they go through the great tribulation and the final judgment, having been sealed by God. And then in the second half of chapter 7, it's after they've endured and now they are in glory. But it's the same group of people. True Israel is now the church because Christ is true Israel and the church is united to him. In other words, we're seeing a picture, a vision of ourselves, brothers and sisters, in glory. That is the point here. And we're to be encouraged and challenged by that. Now, I intended to highlight three descriptors here of this group of people. And we just don't have time to really linger over each and every one. So let me cover the first two descriptors very quickly. First of all, you see that this group is described as a multitude that no one could number. A multitude no one could number. Second of all, they're described as being from every nation, from all tongues and tribes and languages and peoples. Now, we've shown you again and again and again how heavily John borrows language from the Old Testament. And so this should cause your mind, this language, to be drawn back to what? The Abrahamic promises in the Old Testament. 
Because what is Abraham promised? What is Jacob promised? As many as there are stars in the sky, and as many sand particles are on the seashore, so shall your offspring be. And why does the Lord change Abram's name from Abram to Abraham? Because he says, from your line, from your seed, from your offspring will come kings and many nations. And so what do we see here? This multitude that no one could number from all the nations of the earth. This is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. And really it's the fulfillment of the command that God gave to Adam and Eve that they failed to be fruitful and multiply. Christ has now accomplished it. He has got image bearers all over the globe bringing glory to God. And now they are in glory themselves. But here's the third descriptor that I really want to spend a lot of time on. You'll notice that they're also described in verse 9, this multitude without number, as having palm branches in their hands. And again, this is to push us back to the Old Testament, not to the Abrahamic promises, but it's to push us back to a feast or a festival, a celebration that Israel was commanded to observe. Every single year for seven days, they were to observe, we see this in Leviticus 23, 39 through 43. Again, don't have time to go there, but you can look it up later. They were commanded to observe this feast of tabernacles or feast of booths. And palm branches played an important part in this because they were to build those tents that they lived in as a family for a week out of palm branches. And in the Old Testament, the imagery of a palm branch being waved also shows victory over an enemy. And why were they to celebrate the Feast of Booths again? Leviticus 23 tells us. It's to remind them of how God brought them out of their captivity to Egypt, how he provided and protected them through their wilderness wanderings, and how he brought them all the way into the promised land. So that why? What's the whole point of the Exodus? What's the climax of the whole book in Exodus chapter 40 when they've set up the tabernacle the way God had told them to and his glory fills it? And he's dwelling with his people and his people are now worshiping him. They were to celebrate this to remind them of all of those things. So what's the significance that the glorified saints are now, in a sense, as G.K. Beale says, celebrating an eschatological feast of booths. The point is that they have experienced a greater exodus through one who's greater than Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has delivered them from their captivity to the flesh and the world and the devil, and he has provided for them and protected them in their wilderness wanderings in this life, and he has brought them all the way home into his presence to worship him forever. And they are celebrating that. Do you see how incredibly powerful this is? This is us. Having been freed from our captivity to Satan and the wrath of God through Jesus, protected from our sufferings in this life and brought all the way home, celebrating with God's people in his presence. And so it's no surprise then in the rest of this section in verses 10 through 12, what do we see the people of God doing? Worshiping him. Look at verses 10 through 12 with me. They're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God 
who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. All is as it should be. This is the new creation. All of creation, all of God's people, worshiping Him, celebrating His salvation, giving Him the glory that He is due. And what we're being shown, brothers and sisters, is this is what awaits us. This is where we're headed. This is what God is up to as he takes you through suffering in this life. He's conforming you to the image of his son until that great day when you perfectly reflect that image. And you are the human being that he intended you to be with all of God's people. And this is meant to motivate us and encourage us. Whatever we're experiencing or suffering or losing or grieving, the temptation is, well, I can get something from the world right now if I'm just willing to compromise. If I'm willing to sin, maybe I can get a little escape from this suffering. A little comfort, a little distraction. And what John is saying, what Jesus is saying to the church, what he's saying to us is, (laughs) you're settling for nothing when I am taking you to everything. Don't be tempted by the lies of what they can offer you here and now. Don't fear what they can take away from you here. Understand that it is a sure thing because I've sealed you that I will take you all the way home. So whatever you must endure, whatever crosses in this life, know that a crown awaits you. Worshiping in the new heavens and the new earth with the new creation. Enjoying God and glorifying him forever. So we've looked at the new creation envisioned. Second of all, let's look at the new creation explained in verses 13 and 14. We have this little dialogue between one of the 24 elders and John. Look at verse 13 with me. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come from? So one of the elders asked John two rhetorical questions. Who are these folks in white robes, and where have they come from? Now we're going to see that John is a very good student. Why? Because he trusts his teacher. He knows, my teacher's not asking me a question he doesn't already know the answer to. So what is John's response? Look at verse 14. I said to him, sir, you know. And so the elder goes on to explain to him, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So he answers these two questions in the opposite order that he asks them. But the first thing he says is, where have they come from? They've come out of, or they have gone through the great tribulation. And again, this language takes us back to the Old Testament. It takes us back to Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, where Daniel prophesies that in the latter days, which we are in, those latter days, Christ's ascension until he comes back again. In those latter days, the people of God will experience heightened persecution and suffering in this world. It's the same language that Jesus picks up on in 
Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. It's the same time period that we talked about and saw in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, where Christ unleashes these four horsemen upon the earth. And what the elder is saying to John is they've endured that great tribulation. They've endured through it. They haven't abandoned the faith. They've faithfully walked through that. Now, the second way that the elder answers this second question, who are they that are clothed in white robes, is interesting. He says, well, they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That may seem like an odd answer to the question, who are they? But here's really what the elder is highlighting and how he's answering this question. He's saying, here's how they did that. Do you want to know how they persevered and endured through the great tribulation, all the sufferings in this life, and in fact through the final judgment itself? The way that they've done that is because they've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. It's purely and entirely the grace of God. That's the point. It's not that they somehow picked themselves up by their bootstraps and in their own strength white-knuckled it. We're just going to endure, hang on through the great tribulation and through the final judgment. No, no, and they weren't able to stand on that final day because of their own good deeds. We talked about that this morning. Our good deeds are like filthy rags before God. And it's not because they were wiser or smarter or anything in and of themselves. It's because of the fact that their filthy rags have been washed clean in the atoning blood of the Lamb. Because in and of ourselves, we're just like Adam. We deserve to be kicked out of the presence of God for our sin and rebellion, don't we? And so the only way that we can come back in is because of Christ's suffering, Christ's righteousness attributed to us because of what the second Adam has done. And so what we see then is even for all eternity, what will our refrain be? It'll be the refrain of that glorious hymn written by Augustus Toplady, Rock of Ages. He says, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the cry of one who's clothed in the robes of Christ's righteousness. And here's the thing. Because we are washed clean by the blood of Christ and united to him, we will endure. We will persevere and we will as an after effect as a reward receive a white robe for conquering and enduring until the very end and thus we will have access to the celestial city and brothers and sisters do you see what an encouragement that is because i don't know about you but at times as i'm suffering in this life sometimes it's i'm tempted to despair as i look at myself as I look at my own weakness, as I look at my own remaining indwelling sin, as I look at the weightiness of the suffering that I have to endure at times, that the people around me have to endure, that I see in the world. And so the temptation is to despair. (laughs) Am I really going to make it until the end? 
And here's the reality. Don't look to yourself. The point is not that you are the hero of this story. Who is this a revelation of? Not you. It's a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are we, brothers and sisters? We're the damsel in distress who needs to be rescued. Not the hero. Although we receive a hero's reward at the end, even as he keeps us. Don't misunderstand. We will persevere and endure until the end, but he gets all the glory, right? What's the song that they're singing? Not salvation belongs to us who are so strong and have endured in our own strength and wisdom and power and might. No, salvation belongs to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb because it's only by the washing of his blood that we now stand. We stand because he stood. And because he continues to stand, we stand in him. And so he will bring us all the way home. So we've looked at the new creation in vision, the new creation explained, and lastly, let's look at the new creation enjoyed in verses 15 through 17. Let me just read first verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Now, I really like the translation of the NASB here. That first word there in English that you see in verse 15 translated as therefore, that's a fine translation. But the NASB translates it for this reason. Well, for this reason, what? For this reason, they stand before the throne of God. Well, for what reason? Well, there's a primary reason and there's a secondary reason. The primary reason that they stand before the throne is because they've been washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. It's because of the Lord's grace and this washing that they're able to stand before the throne of God. It's not because of their purity or moral righteousness, but Christ's. Now, secondarily, because that's true, as an evidence of the fact that that's true, They stand before the throne for this reason, because they have persevered and endured until the end. One of the evidences that you are truly in Christ is that you endure until the end. And you're given this access to God. And that's really what the reward is, by the way. What's the reward that they receive? It's eternal life for enduring and persevering to the end. It's that reward that we talked about this morning as we were looking at Genesis chapter 3, that if Adam had persisted in obedience to God, he would have eventually attained that eternal life where he never would have been removed from the presence and communion and fellowship with God. As a matter of fact, it only would have gotten better. And yet that's not what happened, is it? He lost that. And so Christ comes and accomplishes that, and now we get to enjoy it. And so what we're seeing here in a very real sense is We're all, in our glorified sense, priests who serve God. Isn't that the whole point that we've been looking at in Genesis, that Adam was a priest in the temple garden of God in Eden, and he was charged to protect it, to keep anything unclean, like a serpent, out, to protect his wife, and yet he fails. The serpent comes in deceives his wife, and then he knowingly eats of the fruit and is kicked out of the garden. 
he fails in his priestly duty, and so he loses access to God in his temple. And yet Jesus comes, the second Adam, and he is the priest of priests, the priest par excellence, the priest that Adam failed to be in the garden, the priest that Israel failed to be in the wilderness. Jesus now comes and is tempted by the serpent, and he stomps on his head. He dies on the cross and he stomps on the serpent's head. And then he ascends to the Father's right hand and he is now that perfect priest serving in the presence of God. And because of that, we are now priests. And our final destination is to serve as priests in his presence forevermore. And if you're going, where's that in the text? Look again at verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And so what are we seeing? We're seeing the fulfillment of that promise that God made to Israel. What did he tell them in Exodus chapter 19 verse 6? You will be to me a kingdom of priests. John picks up that language earlier in Revelation chapter 1 verse 6 and says that Jesus saved us and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Same idea in Revelation chapter 5 Verse 10, and here's what we need to understand. We're not in some physical temple for all eternity. What's the point? What's the point of a temple or a tabernacle? It's that they lost access to God's presence, and so he comes down to dwell in them, and now in our glorified state, we will have immediate access to God himself as priests who fellowship and commune and serve him. That's this glorious reality. The fulfillment of, go look this up later, Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 26 through 28, where the Lord says, then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. My presence is in their midst. And so we see all of these covenant promises fulfilled. And the people of God enjoying fellowship with the triune God for all eternity. Now we could just stop there and that would be enough. But that's not where Christ stops. That's not where John stops. Our enjoyment of the new creation continues in verses 16 through 17. Look there very briefly with me. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. John is just wholesale ripping this language from Isaiah chapter 49 verses 9 through 10. Don't have time to go there, but you can go look it up later. But what is the whole point of that passage? It's that the new creation has finally come. The curse has been reversed. There's no more horsemen wreaking havoc on the earth and its inhabitants and God's people. There's no more suffering. It's all removed. And there's no more death. How do we know that there's no more death? Well, look at the very end of verse 17 there. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. John picks up that language again later in Revelation 21 and verse 4, and here's what he says. 
he, that is God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. All the curses unleashed at the fall, all the curses unleashed by the Lamb, as he's opening up the seals on the scrolls, they're all gone and done away. And we're enjoying God's presence. Brothers and sisters, do you see how encouraging that is? This is ours. Why? Not because of you. Not because of me. Not because of us. But because of the sheer grace of God. And in keeping with his eternal decree of electing us to the praise of his glorious grace, he set his seal upon us. And he's washed us with the blood of the Lamb. And we will persevere until the end. And so, this is us. Singing God's praises. Being evidences of his grace to all creation. And so, as you're tempted to give up and wonder if you'll make it to the end, remind yourself, fill your mind with the reality of what awaits you. And that the one who will cause you to persevere is the one seated on the throne and the Lamb who loved you and laid down his life for you. And he will take us all the way home. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this clear vision of our final destination. It is our confession this afternoon that salvation does belong to you, O God, the one seated on the throne in the Lamb. We pray that you would use this vision to purify us and sustain us until we reach the new heavens and the new earth by your grace. And until that day comes, may we be willing to endure whatever the cost to be faithful to you and make your gospel known to those around us here in Bakersfield and to the ends of the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.